Let us have our prayer of illumination and then we'll read from God's holy word. Lord Jesus, we come before you now. We thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. We worship you. We know that this word that you have given to men to write down is your very word. It is the truth from heaven. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would open ears, that you would open eyes, that you would open hearts to hear, to reflect, and to believe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one sitting next to you close by. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. For some of you, you may think, well, this isn't a very usual Christmas time passage to look at, but I want to challenge you that this is a very merry passage to read all the time but certainly at this time of year. Beginning in verse 13, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Most people love this time of year. They love the holidays. They love the lights. I really don't know anybody who doesn't like going out and looking at all the beautiful lights. Jen and I were recently over in Dallas, Texas, and we were in one of the more fluent parts of our country in the Highland Park area, and there's a street that literally houses are as big as some of the biggest buildings in Tucson, or people's homes, and up and down them, they have just spent ridiculous amounts of money with jack-in-the-boxes that literally mechanically move in and out, and I mean, they are like the kind of things that you would see at a Macy's department store in New York that are in their lawns. I mean, it's just incredible. And uh, it's just really beautiful, and it's one of the things that, that people often enjoy about this time is to, for us to go down to Winter Haven. I think our family is going to do that this evening. We're going to go down to Winter Haven and, and walk around and look at the lights. It's beautiful. Another thing that people enjoy about this time of the year is the food. And uh, my wife would tell you that, um, that she was going to kind of scrimp a little bit this year, and I said, what, we're not having this? We're not having this kind of pie? We're not having this kind of cake? I mean, how can we be this time of year and not celebrate those things. We love the music. Um, for, for many of us, we love to listen to the music. We love the overall festivities. But I want to also remind us, and I want to use myself as an example, that I grew up with a love-hate relationship of the Christmas season. I grew up in a Christian family. 
But I grew up in a divorced home. And I grew up in a home where part of my family were believers, part of them were not. And oftentimes Christmas, for me growing up, was a glaring reminder that my dad was not going to be in my life one more Christmas. That my mother and my aunt were going to be unhappy with one another because my aunt did not believe and my mother did. And I knew that basically what was going to happen is inevitably somebody was going to spill the beans on some religious perspective. Somebody was going to accidentally remind somebody else of what their particular affiliation politically was. And it was just going to be a really ugly scene. And if that wasn't bad enough, um, I was kind of a, a bit of a rogue growing up, and so I wasn't exactly Mr. Nice and Kind and Genteel. So it just Christmas was often a very unpleasant and yet very wonderful time. And there's a lot of people like that, that when they show up to this particular time of the year, some of us have big smiles on our face and we are celebrating and happy. And for other people, this is just another reminder of the dysfunctionality and the hopelessness that they feel most of the time brought to a glaring, obvious sight. And so here's the question that we have to constantly ask ourselves, and it's right this morning that we should do it, is what's the point of all this celebrating? What's really the point? Is it just another holiday? Is it just another excuse to eat, to sing some quaint carols, to remember some old tunes which somehow hearken us back to some <coughs> Charles Dickens time of life that for some people they romanticize into some great and wonderful time, but Dickens himself would tell you that his period of England was no merry time. It was difficult. It was hard. And life today is hard. So is there some point to the celebration? Is there some point to the festivity? And I think that what I want us to look at this morning says, yes, there is. But hopefully it's not just this time of year that we think about it. Hopefully we begin to see that every day, and especially every Sunday, is a day to have a very merry gospel. So let's begin to look at this passage and see how we might be able to comprehend that. The first thing I want us to look at in this passage is we could look at, I read 13, 14, and 15 to kind of give us a sense of where 16 and 17 flow in, but I really want to look primarily at, at 16 and 17 with using 13 and 14 and 15 to help us look at it. The first thing I want us to consider is this. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, which has to draw us to ask this question. Are there people who are ashamed? Is there a possibility that the gospel does shame people? That people feel ashamed of the gospel? Is it possible? And the answer is yes, it is. What I want us to think about this is that Christians are constantly tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Every day. Every day. And that was no different for Paul and the Christians of his day 
the reality of the world being hostile, the idea of showing up at a place like Rome, the pinnacle of civilization, to tell the emperor and all the elite of the Greco-Roman world that somehow Paul knew something that they didn't in all their wisdom, in all their knowledge, in all their understanding. What foolishness. What stupidity. What arrogance. And aren't these things that every Christian has to endure on a regular basis when they deign to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he really is a, was a true man. And not just a man, but God in the flesh. Isn't there a reality that every single one of you on a more than regular basis fails to say something to someone that you perfectly have opportunity to say something to because you are ashamed of the gospel. Because you say, what's this going to cost? See, there is a shame that comes with the gospel. And I want you to know that ministers probably feel it as much as anybody. You know, I've listened to ministers recently talk about things like, you know, they just want to be able to go to a barber shop and sit down in the barber's chair and just have the person cut their hair and not ask any questions. Or just to be able to go get on an airplane and sit down and just read a book or put your iPod earphones in and just kind of chill out for a couple of hours and not have to counsel someone or witness to someone or talk to someone. You just want to be able to just to be quiet, put the chair back in recline and just kind of go to sleep for a little while. And then you have that question, that dreaded question as you sit and they're cutting your hair or you sit in the plane and they turn to you and they say, so Dennis, what do you do for a living? Hmm. What do I really want to say? You know, it really doesn't matter what I do. Could you just cut my hair? <laughs> See, don't you understand that in some sense, that's a real sense of being ashamed of the gospel? Why is it that I wouldn't want to just immediately spring up the chair and say, let me tell you what I do. I have the great privilege of not only knowing Jesus, but my occupation is to make him known to others to help equip other people to know Him better, to enable them to walk more closely with Him, to read and see the depth of His Word and to experience the reality of the Spirit. But don't you see that all of us feel the shame of the Gospel in different ways? And Paul points this out in some ways, the idea that you might see. And I want you to think about this. Some of us are shamed by the gospel because we're around our peers a lot. I mean, what will they think about me? Or maybe you're going home to be with your family and you think, you know, I just, I just don't want to one more time have to be the one who stands out as the Christian in the family. Or the one who really believes the Bible is the word of God. Because, of course, everybody in our family is a Christian. They were born in America. What else would they be? 
You see, the difficulty, the, the struggle. But then there's also the struggle of being with those who are nothing like you. You know, our family went down on Friday and served food, served Christmas dinner down at the Gospel Rescue Mission. And there are many people down there that I interacted with that, quite frankly, there is almost night and day difference between them and me, my growing up experience and their growing up experience. What they've been able to experience educationally and what God, by His grace, has allowed me to experience educationally. The culture that I grew up in, in God's country, the South, and their experience growing up in the harsh desert of the Southwest. I mean, I'm just saying, I just want you to understand that, that that becomes a difficulty too. It can become a barrier. You feel, what have I got to say to these people? I mean, what possibly could I do to say anything or have anything meaningful to relate to them? As I'm going to get back in my van with my family and drive back up to the Northwest into our generally nice home and our generally nice neighborhood with our generally nice families all around us. And some of them are going to take that styrofoam box filled with food and find their favorite palm tree and hopefully have a warm blanket and a decent coat and maybe a piece of plastic to pull over them to protect them from the night air. How can I possibly relate to them? And see, there's a sense of shame that comes, a sense of doubting, a sense of what's wrong in this world that people live like this and other people don't. And Paul goes on to talk about Gentiles and barbarians, people who are cultured and people who are uncultured, people who are wise in the world's eyes and people who are foolish in the world's eyes. And see, we all feel the realities that Paul now has laid out for us when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So you can't really feel the power of that till you're willing to own up to the fact that you often do feel ashamed of the gospel. And so that then brings us to the second thing I want us to look at this morning is what Paul goes on to say. He says this, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, part of the reason why the gospel, sometimes we are ashamed of it, is because quite frankly, it's veiled in certain ways. And we're told this throughout the Scriptures, that there's a veiling that comes over people's eyes. And when you stand up and say, can't you see how ridiculous it is to believe that a bunch of molecules smashed together eons ago and somehow we got all this? Doesn't it just make more sense to believe that a loving, caring creator, not just someone who's a great designer, but a true, relational, creational being stepped into reality that we now experience in time and space and said, be, and it was. Doesn't that make more sense? And they look at you and think, what a fool. What an idiot. What a moron you are. I watched a special the other night on PBS, and I oftentimes enjoy watching those. This was one that I really struggled with because basically what they did was said that basically the first five books of the Bible were written 
most likely during the time of Hezekiah and Josiah, and primarily for Josiah, so that he could enforce political solidarity in Israel to stave off the Assyrians and to stave off the Egyptians who both wanted to take over his country. And so it made perfect sense that he would create the cult that became the Jewish religion, centralizing worship. And what I want you to understand is they went through this whole thing for two hours explaining how archaeologically and and both from what Scripture says and from what they know was going on in political times, that it could not possibly have been right that Moses, at the time of Ramses, could have possibly written the Word of God. It's just inconceivable. Even the text of the Bible doesn't agree with that. What I want you to understand is, is that there is a reality that you have to come to and to understand that people apart from God cannot and will not believe. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So you have to understand that that power is veiled. I want to tell you about a friend of mine and a a mentor of mine who's gone to be with the Lord at this point. But this man, I'll be 42 in a month. He died when he was 45. Now, to me at age 16, that seemed awfully young or awfully old. He seemed like he had lived, but still young. But now it seems like he's, man, he was a young guy, (laughs) really young. I mean, the prime of life, and he was. This man, eight years earlier to his death, had become a Christian. Now, Vance Cartwright, and for those of you that have ever been in my office and looked up and see this, this man with this big grin on his face, this little guy, he probably was all of about 5'4 and probably weighed 150 pounds soaking wet, was one of the most powerful evangelists I've ever met in my life. And not because that's what his profession was. He was actually a pediodontist. He began to take, after he became a Christian, the first mission trips down to Belize to start to do free dental work, which that mission has grown into huge things where people from all over the world certainly all over the United States, go down and do these things. But what I want you to see is there was nothing about Vance. You didn't look at Vance and go, wow, that's power. That's a powerful person. But in the eight years that Vance lived on this planet as a Christian, more than 4,000 people came to know Jesus. At his funeral at a church that seated over 5,000, it was almost filled. And over half the people sitting in that auditorium that day in that sanctuary were people that had been personally witnessed to and advanced and had the privilege to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ because he believed something. He believed that even as a little bitty guy with a silly grin on his face, and a very cornball sense of humor, which may explain a lot to some of you, the influence he's had on me. Um, That that man could actually see people of all walks of life, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, come to faith in Jesus. How? Because there's power in the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that any one of you is going to go out and because you believe that the gospel is the power of God, that somehow you're going to have three or 4,000 people But see, why is it that we don't believe that? 
Why do we just think that's something you read about in the book of Acts and it just occasionally happens and maybe it might happen? Do you know that I have friends in Zambia right now that every time they preach the gospel in a building, that the building is surrounded by hundreds, sometimes a thousand people outside the building they're preaching in? And that literally every, every week, hundreds of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Churches are springing up all over the place. Why is it that we believe that there is no power in this message? See, it stems back to how we're dealing with shame. But see, the point I want you to see is, is there is power there. And I want you to think about when we talk about this veiled quality, I want you to think about Samson. Most people, when they read about Samson, always think about Samson being some Herculean figure. Some person, you know, this dude with long flowing hair, with this Fabio build, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger with long hair. I mean, kind of the Conan the Barbarian kind of guy. But don't you understand that if Samson would have been that kind of guy, that at least people would have looked at him and said, well, I know why he's kicking everybody's tail. Look at him. He's a behemoth. Who could stop this seven-foot Goliath-type figure with this long, flowing hair? Don't you understand that it's more likely that if you'd have seen Samson from the back, you wouldn't have known whether to say Mr. or Ma'am? That more than likely, when you looked at Samson, you saw somebody that was just walking around in a robe that he didn't really fill out? That he was kind of, maybe even puny? Veiled power. That's why they were astounded. How does this guy whip us all the time? How is it that he picks up the jawbone of a donkey and wails on 3,000 Philistines? Don't you see what the Bible is trying to tell you about God and His power? It's often veiled. It often appears foolish and insignificant even though it accomplishes everything it set out to do. See, and that's what Paul's saying. It's not that the gospel itself is power, but the gospel actually saying Jesus has come into the world to save sinners like you and me. Actually declaring that Christ is real, that somehow that foolishness to the world, God has empowered to bring people out of darkness into His marvelous light. And see, the point is, is that you have to believe that first. It has to become something that you actually say, I believe the gospel has the power to actually do something to me. Don't you see that's where it starts? If you don't believe the gospel can change you, why would you believe it could change anybody else? And maybe that begins to go to the heart of why oftentimes we're not very merry when it comes to talking about Jesus to our friends, to our co-workers, and to our neighbors. Because we don't really believe it can really change us. We don't really believe it can transform us. And therefore we walk around somewhat ashamed. Now I want you to think about the kind of power, before we move to our last point, that this is. This is the kind of power that shows up in an obscure Jewish man living in two different obscure villages growing up 
and walking around who says to lepers, be clean. And they are. It's the kind of power that says to a lame man, rise up, take your mat, and walk. It's the kind of power that can step up in a boat and say to the wind, hush, and to the waves, be still. That's the kind of power that Paul is saying is at work in the gospel. Now, the last thing I want us to look at in this passage that I think that Paul draws us to is the reach of the gospel. And what I want you to think about is that if you begin to, in your own heart to say, yes, I see the power of the gospel, then what you then have to be able to look up and see what Paul then says. Because Paul says, look, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so it's got a universal quality to it, but in that universality, it has a conditionality to believe. Which might be for us to go, well, that just kind of kicks you right in the teeth. I mean, yeah, it's for everyone who will believe. But isn't that the problem? So it sends us back to remembering the power. But Paul also wants us to realize the reach. And that's why he goes on to say, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. While he's used the Greeks earlier to draw a distinction between cultured and uncultured people, Greeks and barbarians, he now uses Greeks as kind of the sum total of everyone who is not a Jew, which it was often used as. The Greeks as opposed to the Jews, the Gentiles, the Goyim, those out there. And what Paul's trying to say to us is this, that while the gospel certainly is for those who are part of the household of God, certainly part of the covenant people of God, which the Jews certainly were, have no fear, it can reach even those who are as far away from God as you can geographically get. The them out there. Now I want us to think about what that might look like for us. What it means is, is that the gospel can reach across cultural lines. Do we believe that? Is this just merely the white man's religion that we're trying to enforce on other people? Or is this the hope of the world? And just for the record, Jesus wasn't a white man. He was a Jewish man. He was not Western. He was Middle Eastern. He was kind of cocoa. And we need to understand that and understand that Christ has come not to save a particular group of people or a particular ethnic group or a particular political ideology or a particular socioeconomic group. He's come to save everyone who will believe. The Jew first, but also everyone else who will believe. So he addresses the cultural issue. He addresses the socioeconomic issue. He also addresses this issue. He addresses the one that I think, quite frankly, keeps most people away from God, even though they may sit in the pews. He addresses the sin and guilt issue. 
See, don't you see the, the good news that Paul says when he says, for in it is revealed the righteousness of God. Don't you understand what's being said? Now, for some people, you'd go, well, see, in it, the righteousness revealed, just like what was said in the Old Testament. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying something new is being declared that you could not have read the Old Testament and figured this out all by yourself. It had to require the gospel in its full expression to get it. And Paul says, do you understand that when you tell people that God, the holy, righteous God, who ought to smite you all and smite me first for our betrayal of His goodness, has instead of smiting people, has come to earth to free them from guilt, to free them from being weighed down that it's all their fault, that if they just would get better and do better, it'd all be okay. See, to free them from that kind of thinking which says that if I just try a little bit harder today than I did yesterday, somehow the earth will align correctly, all the planets will line up, and life will finally for the first time start to go okay. You see, what's being said in this passage is this, that God has come in the flesh to demonstrate His power and to show that righteousness can actually be granted to people who are incredibly unrighteous, incredibly wicked, incredibly and profoundly ungodly people. The gospel has the ability to reach those kind of people, even there. And we sing about it in one of our hymns, right? Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That's how far His reach goes. And see, again, do we really believe that? Do you really believe Do you really believe that Jesus is able to spread open your life and to lay it out before Him and to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And my righteousness covers all of your sin. Covered. Completely. Account not just made even, not all just your debts paid, but your account is filled to the uttermost with my righteousness. You are viewed by me and my Father as good as you can possibly be. Ever. You're the best. See, do you believe that God's gospel in His Son, that that's the message? That it has power to change you and it has power to reach you? Because see, if you see that, then you have a great opportunity as you leave today to go out and tell other people, I know how far God's gospel can reach because it reached me. I know how powerful it is because there's nothing in me that's been able to withstand His goodness, His grace, His mercy. 
And then, if you really believe that, what's there to be ashamed about? See, because shame comes from not believing that the gospel is able to do what God says it's able to do. And shame comes from not believing it's able to reach where God says it's able to reach. In conclusion, then, I want us to think about this. This is the focus that should draw us every week into this room. Every week we should gather because we know that what we will see and taste and hear is the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to most of us in this room, Gentiles, who God has saved. And I want to challenge you that you not leave today with the determination to go back into a mentality which says, well, that's a nice message and I'd sure like to believe it. Because see, if you say that, you basically undercut everything that Paul has told you in this passage. You even are forgiven of your doubt. You're even forgiven your unbelief. Believe. Believe. And be changed. May God make it so in our midst, I pray. Amen.